0: Welcome back. There will be spoilers, 100 films, 100 podcasts. My name is Matt Vizel. And I am Ethan Knight. And we are back on the AFI Top 100 with number 29 on the list, which is 1944's Double Indemnity.
1: Double Indemnity.
0: Another film noir.
1: Yes, and arguably the first film noir.
0: Well, where is the thin man in that? Isn't it like a 1934 film? Mm, You might be right. Is that a noir necessarily? I'm new to the genre. Uh,
1: I'm not sure. I haven't, I'm not familiar enough with the thin man to really listen. I'm not familiar enough with the genre either to really make that claim. I just read it that it's arguably one of the first, if not the first.
0: I mean, our first experience with film noir was like a couple weeks back with the Maltese Falcon.
1: Yes. And actually most of my own knowledge of film noir is with sort of neo film noir, so,
0: like Blade Runner,
1: like Blade Runner, or uh, like uh that other. What's that other Steven Spielberg film? Minority Report, also a neo noir oh, okay. film. Sure, yeah, and just I mean there are a whole bunch of others that we could probably list off, but yeah.
0: Well, let me start here. This film based on a novel. Mm-hmm, yet another. The novel is adapted by Raymond Chandler. Hmm. Another mystery noir writer.
1: Hard-boiled, yeah.
0: Yeah, who is known for his character, I think, Philip Marlowe. Yes, I believe so. Philip Marlowe was also portrayed by Humphrey Bogart on the screen.
1: Yes, and actually isn't our last film noir uh, also a Raymond Chandler adaptation?
0: I don't know.
1: Isn't Raymond Chandler Red Harvest, or am I mixing him up with the other guy?
0: No, that's Dashiell Hammett.
1: Dashiell Hammett. I mix up Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler, but well, Dashiell,
0: Hamlet did, Hamlet. <laughs> Dashiell Hammett, Hamlet. Hammett did <laughs> Maltese Falcon and also Maltese wrote Falcon. Wrote the Thin Man.
1: Oh, okay, yeah. So they're they're cut of the same cloth, and I don't remember who comes first, but yes, you're yeah, you're right.
0: So there's connections all over. But I think the important thing to do is to start with a plot synopsis.
1: Yes, and there's a lot of plot here, um, and so I I breezed through it as as well as I could, but I'm sure you'll have a few things to add. Uh, So here we go. Double Indemnity is the story of Walter Neff, an insurance salesman embroiled in a murder plot. The film begins with a frame narrative, which is Neff returning to his office in the middle of the night to use his colleague's dictaphone where he relays the plot in very Edgar Allan Poe-style style. Uh, you know, they say I am mad, here is my confession, right, sort of thing. So Neff, in flashback for the majority of the film, attempts to have a meeting with a Mr. Dietrichson to re-up his car insurance. At the Dietrichson home, Neff meets not the husband, but the wife, Mrs. Phyllis Dietrichson, who becomes immediately a source of sexual desire for him. The two flirt, and Phyllis inquires about taking an accident accident policy out on her husband without his knowledge. Neff immediately realizes that she's considering murdering her husband for the insurance money and decides he wants no part. However, when Phyllis shows up later at his apartment, Neff is finally convinced to join in. He tricks Mr. Dietrichson into signing an accident policy uh, and a blank check to the insurance company and plans on murdering him in such a way that Phyllis will receive double the payout, which is, of course, the titular double indemnity. Dietrichson breaks his leg and falls into the trap afterwards set by Phyllis and Neff. As Phyllis drives her husband to the train station for business, Neff in the back seat, breaks Dietrichson's neck. Neff then impersonates Dietrichson on the train and leaps off the back when no one is watching. Dietrichson's body is then dumped by the two onto the tracks, making his death look as though he fell from the train and broke his neck. Norton, the insurance company head, the next day believes the death to be suicide, but Keyes, which is Neff's brilliant claims man, argues with him, insisting that it was not suicide. Keyes believes instead that Phyllis was involved in foul play with an accomplice. Lola, which is Dietrichson's daughter from his first marriage, approaches Neff, admitting that she believes that Phyllis killed not only her father, but her mother as well several years before. She suspects her ex-boyfriend Nino was Phyllis's accomplice because she's seen the two shacking up. Neff begins to casually date Lola while ignoring Phyllis in order to avoid a link between the two to show that he and Phyllis are not linked keys gets closer and closer to the truth eventually also assuming that nino was phyllis's accomplice Neff discovers through lola and through keys that phyllis has been seeing nino the entire time that she was seeing him he's not too happy about that Neff eventually crafts a plan to fully plant the blame on phyllis and nino exonerating himself meeting phyllis at her home late one night he plans to kill her and blame it on Nino so that she can't blab. At her home, Phyllis shoots Neff in the shoulder, but can't bring herself to kill him. He takes her gun and then shoots her to death. Neff stops Nino on his way in. He was going to frame him, but he has a change of heart and sends him to Lola. He speeds back to the office and begins his dictaphone recording, bringing us all the way back to the beginning of the film. Key's of course, walks in, having heard the truth or enough of the truth. Neff tries to escape, hoping to head for the border, but can't make it to the elevator because of his injuries. He's lost too much blood. Keys calls an ambulance and the police, and Neff has a final smoke as the film ends.
0: Ethan, I feel like you put too much sex in this film. Did I? I'm not sure Phyllis and Nino are having a sexual relationship. The way I understood it was that Nino keeps going to Phyllis because he's trying to hear more about Lola, and she, being Phyllis, keeps kind of poisoning the well there about Lola. Uh,
1: well, I, I, it could be. Sure. I don't know. I mean, this is—is is this a pre? This is a pre-code film, right?
0: Well, we'll talk about that in our three questions. I have some things to say there.
1: Oh, okay, good. Um, so the, oh, I think a lot of the sex here is is sort of left up to. Us to decide because i think you could absolutely see it the way you you read it right but i s- sort of saw the relationship between nino and phyllis as if not explicitly sexual one that Neff reads himself as sexual which leads him to betray or at least makes it easier for him to betray phyllis
0: Yes, I think it's both. I think Neff understands it as sexual, then learns from Phyllis when she tells him, I was just using Nino to become like the gun that's going to take care of you. And I was using him against Lola as well.
1: Right. I mean, the, the, the big takeaway here is that Phyllis is, the, is a black widow. She's yes. got everyone in her web and she's playing everyone.
0: And I'm not sure Neff's having a sexual relationship with Lola either.
1: Yeah, I don't think that they're necessarily – I think that they're – it's romantic, but perhaps not sexual.
0: Well, they're always talking about Nino, so it feels like either they have the worst dates ever or he's just supposed to be a kind of, like, avuncular figure for her.
1: Mm, yeah, I I think it's probably somewhere in the middle.
0: Which is a weird place to be.
1: <laughs> yeah, it really is.
0: Ethan, I want to talk about my pivotal scene. Yeah, let's which do Which is that. maybe not what you would expect. Okay. This scene comes about 45 minutes into the film and it's about keys talking about the salesman versus if he yeah. works for keys and uses his mind so let's go ahead and listen to this
2: yes hello keys just came from norton's office semi-annual sales records are out you're high man walter that's twice in a row congratulations thanks how would you like a cheap drink how would you like a 50 dollars cut in salary do i laugh now it really gets funny no i'm serious i've just been talking to Norton. Too much stuff piling up on my desk, too much pressure on my nerves. I spent half the night walking up and down my bed. I've got to have an assistant and I thought of you. Me? Why pick on me? Well, because I've got a crazy idea you might be good at the job. That's crazy, all right. I'm a salesman. Yeah, peddler, flat hander slapper You're too good to be a salesman. Nobody's too good to be a salesman. Oh, all you guys do is just ring doorbells and dish out a smooth line of monkey talk. What's troubling you is that 50-buck cut, isn't it? Well, that'll trouble anybody. Now, look, Walter, the job I'm talking about takes brains and integrity. It takes more guts than there is in 50 salesmen. It's the hottest job in the business. Yeah, but it's still a desk job. I don't want to be nailed to a desk. Desk job? Is that all you can see in it? Just a hard chair to park your pants on from nine to five, huh? Just a pile of papers to shuffle around and five sharp pencils and a scratch pad to make figures on, maybe a little doodling on the side. Well, that's not the way I look at it, Walter. To me, a claims man is a surgeon. That desk is an operating table, and those pencils are scalpels and bone chisels. And those papers are not just forms and statistics and claims for compensation. They're alive. They're packed with drama, with twisted hopes and crooked dreams. A claims man, Walter, is a a doctor and a bloodhound and a... Who? Okay, hold on a minute. A claims man is a doctor and a bloodhound and a cop and a judge and a jury and a father confessor all in one. And you want to tell me you're not interested. You don't want to work with your brains. All you want to work is with your finger on the doorbell for a few bucks more. Are we, there's a name on your phone.
0: The reason I picked this scene, Ethan, is that it goes along with my thesis or partial thesis that I've formed. And I'd like to posit that keys is actually hero of this film.
1: I, you know what? My, um, plot synopsis doesn't do keys justice because, because I think you're right. Um, keys i think is finally the hero if not necessarily the protagonist but the hero of the story and i'll and i should let you talk instead of rambling myself
0: no you're right certainly not the protagonist because that's neff because we're inhabiting neff the dictaphone thing which is a very characteristic at least from what i understand film noir thing Yeah, yeah we saw that back in blade runner yeah and it makes sense because he's actually giving the narration to keys. This is a confession to keys, and Keyes mm-hmm. is the one that comes in at the end and prevents Neff from escaping or killing himself, either or. Mm-hmm. There's actually a scene that's cut from the film where it's Neff in the gas chamber, and oh. Keyes walking away, looking into the sunlight, and just being like this lonely man. I think the actual notes say that he's walking away as a lonely person
1: oh no i didn't know about that i did you know i didn't get the chance to do much reading about this film uh because i was down to the wire uh in our in my watching and writing before we recorded so this is all news to me and that's fascinating
0: yeah so it's actually more centered on keys in the alternate well it's not really alternate because we know Neff still is going to go to the gas chamber because he's not going to die here
1: yeah he's going to go he's made a full confession i mean right and, and you're right. I mean, Keyes is the one who. I mean, he plays the detective in this film. He is this sort of. If we see, he's almost the antagonist in some ways.
0: Oh, he is the antagonist at the at the back half of the film. Certainly, yes,
1: yes, at the back half, definitely. Split between you know, I I mean, I guess also you could also make a good argument that uh, uh Phyllis is is the antagonist as well.
0: Sure, but we have Keys as our hard boiled got his stomach hunches detective mm-hmm. figuring things out who's got a code and a system all to his own yeah. now compare Neff to that and what do we have we have this guy who is really kind of sleazy mm-hmm. and just likes to be out has no roots just immediately wants to shack up with this dude's wife with yeah some provocation but she we also know that she's also not a great person either Yeah.
1: Well, and we and we also know, I mean, I think this is really interesting that you talk about the that you chose that scene where he taught where uh, Keys talks about the brain and, and, you know, his his like using his head and everything. And Naf does not. I I pause this movie about halfway through or three quarters of the way through and turn, you know, Olivia was not really watching, but she was there. And I turned and I was like, this guy's a fucking idiot idiot he meets this woman for like he meets her twice and agrees to murder her husband does he murders that husband and he doesn't just murder him he breaks his neck he doesn't strangle him he breaks his neck and then finds out that he's been like double crossed triple crossed whatever no shit of course you got double crossed you don't know this person what are you doing you know he's not smart he does he thinks he's thinking ahead but he's not
0: yeah, and that's something I really like about this film because that's something that Keys vocalizes and says, look, yes. murder is never perfect. And when you've got two people, it's mm. the both of you to the end of the line, yep. which is mirroring their phrase, their phrase being Phyllis and Neff's phrase of straight down the line. And I don't know straight why the every time they said that, I kept thinking of Apocalypse Now and Marlon Brando's Kurtz character talking about that snail or slug crawling along the length Um, of a razor blade razor
1: blade yeah and not getting hurt yeah it's uh, i but i think that that's not necessarily a bad comparison right like it's it's another this sort of straight down the line is is another sort of insane thing like you are you, you can't go straight down the line you can't be a slug on a razor blade it's impossible right
0: yeah and it's a precarious position in which you have to be perfect and both these people appear to be hyper emotional yeah yeah it's a little jealousy seeds get in there it's a plot line we're very familiar with but it's so Mm -hmm. true and that's what i think makes this film so successful is like what could happen but utter destruction for these two there's no way they get away with this are you kidding
1: and and what's and what's so fascinating at least for me was that watching this film uh by the end i mean i at the end i mean i was rooting for you know right maybe throughout the whole film i was rooting for um our our protagonist right for uh neff which is insane he's an awful character but the film does such a good job of placing you in his head and you know i not really getting you on his side but you know you it's, it's it's like a puzzle box for you to unravel along with him right and you want to i mean who doesn't want to commit the perfect crime in some in some deep recess of their mind right like there is there's an excitement in that you know in breaking the rules and getting away with it and and you want him to do it and he he gets close he gets close enough you know to sort of taste it but 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 never gets there
0: do you think your initial being in the corner of neth is because of his like wisecracking personality like he's got some some personability to him
1: part. Yeah. Partially. And I think that comes out of like, right. This is what that, that monologue with uh, keys has to do with, right. Is that like, are you going to just, you you know, you're using your finger, you're using your, you, you know, you're shaking hands and smiling and shit. I mean, he, he's meant to be that kind of, he's a salesman. He is a salesman. And so he sell, he spends the entire film selling everything. He sells the plan. He sells, his confession he's all he's selling himself as you know not that bad of a guy even though of course he's he's abhorrent there's there's so much selling going on instead of thinking mm-hmm. and so I do think that your choice is perfect for this film your choice of scene
0: and I wonder how you think about Phyllis at the end where she's unable to shoot neph does she really fall in love with him or does she just realize she's in love with him at that last moment
1: <sighs> you know I'm i, I I'm still grappling with that because she should shoot him by all means. She should shoot him again and kill him. And, and she doesn't. I wonder, I think there's a split here for me. It's either perhaps she does truly love him. Um, or perhaps she knows that no matter what she's done, she can't win this. So, you know, she's, she's either going to take the electric chair or, or get gut shot and die. So, I mean, it's a game to the end. Maybe she can convince him not to kill her and and escape. You know what I mean? She's such a shady, shifty character. Maybe she's envisioning a way out.
0: Well, one thing's for certain: Neff is a cold-blooded killer. Yeah. Kills Dietrichsen, no problem. Walks away. I think there's like one line about he couldn't hear his footsteps. It sounded like he was a dead person. It's like yeah. the only thing he has an issue with just murdering this man in cold blood in close proximity. And then he closed, kills her at very close proximity. just says, bye, yeah. baby. Shoots her twice in the stomach. And he could have just taken the gun and walked away, right? He didn't have to kill her. I guess he was yeah. still making plans that he had to escape. And he's like tying up loose ends or something.
1: Well, and he wants to frame Nino, right, for killing her. And then she can't talk in court and point the finger at him.
0: But 45 seconds later, he lets Nino go and tells him to go yeah. be happy with Lola. So I don't know if that's necessarily... I don't know when that that. That change happens.
1: Well, I think that after he kills her, he has this change of heart where he realizes, fuck it, you know. Also, he's been shot. How is he going to fucking play that? You know, there comes a point where it's like, you're you're done. You can't you can pin this on Nino, but you still got shot in the arm. Someone's going to find out about that.
0: Yeah, I think he's all in in the escape plan at that point.
1: Yeah, and well, and he, yeah, that he thinks he can make it to the border. He's going to leave a full confession and make it to the border, and he can't do that.
0: Well, Ethan, it's about time to turn to our three questions. Yeah. Before we do, let's talk a moment about Anchor. Let's do it. Okay, so first, what do we owe to this film?
1: Well, being the the sort of, maybe if not the first film noir, but but in the first batch I think we do really owe... I mean, you, every, you look at everything in The Maltese Falcon, and you don't have The Maltese Falcon without this film, without a doubt. Uh, you simply don't. The way that the cinematography works, the way they deal with light and shadow, with framing, you know, these these almost impressionistic shots where we see the world as, um, as Neff does, almost, I mean, all of that, I think becomes iconic film noir language short shorthand right and i think that you can't i mean you can't talk about film noir without this film even that that opening shot the the car you know screaming through the through traffic uh you know he's hunched over we don't see neff's face until the very last moment of the of the first sort of scene that you know he's he's in the trench coat in the hat and he sits down to start telling his story you know he's definitely bloody there there, that whole thing it's this iconic language visual language that is you can't get away from
0: yeah and i also think that We don't see in Maltese Falcon the same kind of voiceover exposition that we do in Double Identity, but we also see that in Blade Runner. So it seems like this film also has contributions to the noir that isn't just like built upon by something like Maltese Falcon and onward. So there are multiple strands here, and I think that was very recognizable in that, and You know, there's something to be said about the production codes here. We brought it up earlier in the episode. I think now's a good time to talk about it. This film was begun pre-code, but... Uh, But not finished. But not finished. So it was locked away basically for a decade. Was it really? Yeah. Trying to get through this whole mess. And that's why you don't see Dietrichson killed on screen. Right. That's why, you know, Neff smoking a cigarette and Mm -hmm. Phyllis is putting her makeup on instead of any kind of like real intimacy there there's a lot of things that they had to keep doing and i think that final execution scene was actually cut because of code as well
1: so they filmed this what in in like in the 30s and then in the 30s yeah oh so that's why it's set in the 30s that makes some wow that's bizarre i didn't know that
0: yeah because it comes out 44 but Mm -hmm. it's set like 37 38 so it's like why would they make that choice but it's because it was contemporary
1: right wow yeah that's that's wild
0: and so i think you know we can clearly see how some of the stronger parts of this film are taken out because of the codes and some more of the thematic resonances we talked earlier about that final scene and what that might have done for interpretation with keys as hero yeah and antagonist i think that we can talk about this as not maybe part of death of the code but i think this is something that contributes to that camel's back there
1: yeah well and and you know what's what's really interesting is that the sort of loss of the explicit scenes right the loss of the of seeing the strangling scene because then instead you just you hear the noise and you see uh phyllis's face you see them like you know like you said smoking a cigarette putting on their on her makeup you know those sorts of things at the end of the day, I think that that actually really adds to this particular film because it adds a level of mystery. You as the audience have to do a little bit of the work, not a lot of work, but a little bit, um, which really allows you to be like Keys listening to the the Dictaphone tapes. Um, and it, it also sort of I, I think that, you know, not seeing the strangling scene but seeing Phyllis's face one really makes her out to be a stone cold awful black widow um and when we find out later that he he wasn't just strangled his neck was broken makes it even more sort of horrifying you know what i mean so i think by it's it's the it's the jaws syndrome by not showing the shark you make it worse
0: which is also the jaws thing of they couldn't because of Limitations one way or the other. Yeah. So I think in this way, we see constraint as a further avenue for creativity. Absolutely. I also think that we owe a lot to the modern mystery suspense novel. Yeah. It's a film like this. It's a very tight plot. Everything is wrapped in, everyone is wrapped in that reveal where Phyllis was the nurse that Mm -hmm. pretty heavily implied that she kills the original Miss Dietrichson is such a good reveal i just think a a tight plot like that is something that is preserved in the better versions of those modern suspense mystery novels and i think we absolutely owe that as well
1: yeah and and i think that what's what's so fascinating too about this film is that like that reveal with mrs d like this is a film that at the at the beginning we know the the ending at least to an extent right we know that uh Neff is a murderer. We know he, that money and women were involved, um, but the the film still can can get us with these moments where I mean I was on the edge of my seat there going oh I mean I talked through this film like a ridiculous man, uh you know I'm like oh no oh no she didn't no you know I mean I'm it was talking through the whole thing because I was like no she killed her. Oh I you know it was it, and it's and you know the ending we know what's gonna happen we know the, the end right. -hmm and it still gets us so you're right it is this this such well done plotting you know it's so tight and and so wrapped up it's perfect yeah
0: well then ethan does this film hold up
1: I think the answer is unequivocally yes I think that this even more so than the Maltese Falcon which I really wanted to like but didn't it, it sort of fell flat for me this film I went in not really having any feelings for it except for that it's a 40s noir film and i was like all right another one of these um and ended up just i mean i was enthralled by this film i think that it was be- it's beautifully shot i think that the acting is pretty damn good i and i think that that plot just it- beat after beat after beat after beat gets
0: you i think to be a defender of maltese falcons i do really like that film i think these are yeah. companion pieces you have yeah. the detective as protagonist and you have the as protagonist in this mm-hmm. one So I I do think they work really well together. I absolutely agree that this holds up very well. This one is great. Everyone knows I'm very much on record about good, solid plot and how it is very important to me alongside of thematics. And so absolutely this film holds up. We've talked often about visually black and white holding up very well, and so it hits all of those notes and holds up great.
1: Yeah, it truly does.
0: So our final question, Ethan, is do we care about this film?
1: I think yeah, I think the answer is is again pretty straightforwardly yes. as something that is one of the er noir texts, you know, as something that has the the kind of um, thematic cinematic reach that it does it it really does help to establish, if not single-handedly establishes that language of of the noir of that kind of mystery and it just does it so well it does it so well
0: i agree i'm a big fan of this film i definitely do care about it think i might also really like the noir genre so yeah. i'll have to keep paying attention to that and along those lines next week our bonus content episode available on patreon will be 1996's fargo
1: yes fargo
0: and then after that, we'll return to the canon list with number twenty-eight on the AFI Top One Hundred, and that is all about Eve.
1: Yes, all about Eve. So we are we're moving into the home stretch here.
0: Yeah, and the, the films just keep getting better. So I look forward to that. But until then, I've been Matt Buzel, and I'm Ethan Knight, and there will be spoilers.
1: Look, I'll buy you
0: a martini with two
1: spoilers. There Will Be Spoilers, 100 Films, 100 Podcasts, was created and hosted by Matt Bizzell and me, Ethan Knight. Matt Bizzell produces our episodes each week. Our music was created by the strange and unusual Breakmaster Cylinder, who you can find all over the internet. Our artwork was created by Becca Knight, who can be found on Twitter at BeccaTheKnight, and that's Knight with a K. You can follow There Will Be Spoilers on Twitter at SpoilersCast, you can hear more episodes on iTunes, Soundcloud and Stitcher. If you like our podcast, you can support us on Patreon for $5 a month at patreon.com/spoilerscast. Your donation gives you access to two extra bonus episodes a month. Thank you for listening and please tune in next week for more spoilers.